Hello. Welcome to the Holopath. Who are we? Well, our name is Legion, for we are many. We are the Hollow Ones. There is nothing to us but a false surface of pasteboard and plaster. We are simulacra. We are puppets. Porcelain dolls, wax dolls, corn dollies, Russian dolls, nested one inside the other. We are empty. We are echoing. Within us is a heart-shaped hole. We are spaces waiting to be filled. We are tired of waiting. We have tried to make our voices heard. We have cried in the wilderness. We have spoken our names into the wind. We have screamed into the void. There was no answer. Behind our carefully constructed personae, behind our acquiescent smiles, behind our polished exteriors with which we signal our submission, there is a yawning chasm. This is the abyss. We have stared into it. It has stared into us. We liked what we saw. We have written screeds and poison pen letters, confessions, manifestos. We have sent our work for peer review, for notes, for prizes, for editing, marked for publication, wrapped in cover letters and synopses, wrapped around a brick and hurled over the transom. We have received polite, heartfelt, calculated form rejections. We have heard we don't fit the list, that we have no audience, that we have no commercial value. We are in violent agreement. We have written poems on flyers for fringe theatre shows. We have written terrible denunciations on the walls of cellar bars. We have written novels featuring thinly veiled versions of ourselves coming to tragic ends. We have written scholarly essays in which we pretended to care about something nobody cares about. We have written unprintable things in secret journals and we have burned our correspondence. It's time to open the trunk filled with packets of paper tied with string old diaries, sheaves of scrawled upon scraps. It's time to mount the spiral stairs and enter the hidden library. To draw down the first volume that our fingers fall upon, blow the dust off the crackling leather cover. To let the pages fall open and begin transcribing spidery lettering within. So what is this all about? Well, we are in the business of mytho 
poetic or mythopoeic exploration. And like all good myths, it behooves this story of a hollow path to tell us, who are we? Where are we coming from? Where are we going? What do we believe in? Well, that little opening cry from the wilderness or lament de profundis tells us a little bit about who is the hollow collective who are on the hollow path. And I suppose that what you could say is that part of the point of this is that it is hollow and it is therefore a container for whatever we want. And the main concern of this as a podcast is going to be art and magic. Now, there is an argument that these two things are the same thing. And often they are. Good art approaches the condition of magic just as all art strives for, aspires to the condition of music. But beyond even music, there is magic, there is enchantment, there is that which cannot be explained by the rational, sensible, logical sciences, but is in itself a type of science of the soul. And why do we say hollow? It isn't merely that a hollow is empty and contain whatever we want. Why walk along a hollow path? Well, you may have seen images before of a hollowway, one of those amazing sunken paths through the forest over which hangs a curving canopy of trees sunk deep between the hedgerows until you get the impression that you are walking such an old way, an old trodden path that it has formed a groove, it has worn itself into the landscape. So that's part of it. It's that we want to follow those old ways, those hidden, hollow, magical, weird paths. Crooked paths also, often. But sometimes, too, the long, straight track, the old straight track, following the lines of the lays, the lays of the land. And so, a hollow is a hole. A hollow is a secret place, a place that we might hide precious things. The hollow hills are where the fairies retreated to all those years ago. But things that are hollow are also things that are empty. Is it that our lives are hollow now? Empty, meaningless, futile? If a promise is hollow, then it bears no content and it clangs. The hollow empty vessel makes most noise. A hollow laugh is not amused, but 
hidden hollow in the heart. That is something useful. Those hollow hills in which we put away those childish things, belief in gods and fairies and enchantment and magic, some of them are in fact hollow and they are burial mounds of the ancient dead and in any case therefore a gateway to the other world. You know perhaps the T.S. Eliot poem The Hollow Men? That's all of us now. Pasteboard, simulacra, papier-mâché over nothing or a frame of wire. We are all that hollow. But there is a space within us that is waiting to be filled. You see, imagine, to hollow, to hollow out means to dig. And to hallow means to bless. Or to call the halloo of the hunter as he rides to hounds. It is a digging, it is a blessing, it is a call. It is an emptiness, it is an exploration, and it is a call. It is a void that longs to hold a secret, sacred thing. It is in all of us. It is not what is out there. We cannot believe that the truth is out there. It isn't. Is here, in our homes, our hearts, our hearts. It is like Freud's uncanny, which in English means that we cannot know or can, so uncanny is something we don't know, or that which is not wise and knowing, which is not canny. But in the original German, it is Unheimlich, unhomely, that which is unfamiliar or strange, but also because heimlich means both homely and secret, the unheimlich is the strange and the familiar at once as one becomes the other. It is the hidden in the process of being relieved, revealed, relived, re-enlivened. The hollow path is the path of the uncanny. It is frightening. It leads to secrets. But it is our way out. For the purposes of this podcast, as well as for many other purposes too, my name is Malachus Iremus. A name I took, um, or was led to take, some years ago. Which means also many things. And I performed a practice upon that name after taking it. Which was the practice of um, fake onomastics. Folk etymology. Nonsense derivations. And it turns out that it meant a lot more than I thought, even initially myself. 
perhaps a story for another time. But, in any case, um, this is the name by which I go for these purposes, and this is a series of discussions, conversations, interviews, reflections about um, the interactions between um, art, magic, enchantment and disenchantment. Um, it is perhaps also programmatic. Um, it is um, it is a way of laying out a manifesto, a secret manifesto that we never tell anyone. However, one which, through close exegesis, may be read between the lines, may be found hidden between the pages of books in the hidden library. Now, what exactly do I want to do with this? Um, I suppose part of the point of it is that I find myself so often participating in conversations and discussions uh, with fascinating people, with wonderful ideas, um, and I know that a great conversation is one that once it has gotten started, it never really ends, that you keep on picking it up and picking at it and turning it over and inside out. And often you don't see the person for years and then you pick it right back up. Or sometimes it's one that you continue every time you see them. And sometimes it's one that you continue by the written word and by messages and by voice and by phone and in person. And sometimes it's that conversation that you only have once with someone. Maybe you never see them again. Or maybe you and that person just never get on the same page again that way. Well, it happens. And so, the point of this is that I feel like I am privileged enough to have met and be in contact with so many people who have such um, such a lot to contribute to these kinds of conversations that I think um, I would love to be able to bottle it and, you know, not bottle it and sell it, bottle it and send those bottles off down the river or off into the sea. Those bottles hoping that they would find other people somewhere far off down the river who will crack them open and drink that strong liquor that's inside. Heady stuff indeed. The mead of the gods. Conversation about the meaning of life. And about mythology, really, in that very deep sense of what are uh, what are our myths, what are our modern myths, what are our ancient myths, and and what are the answers that can be found in them? Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? 
what do we hold dear? What do we believe in? So, um, that's the idea. Now, I think that the idea of starting it now also is the idea that somehow its time has come. In fact, I think I'm already too late. These last few years, I think I can't be alone. I know I'm not alone. In feeling like there's a sort of a permanent crisis, and yet it's also escalating. Like things are getting more and more, I don't want to say worse, but more and more intense, chaotic, um, overwhelming. And it feels like the tools that have been deployed in the service of our culture, our civilization, to combat the forces of entropy, both around us and within us, are just not working. Um, and many of them are way too tied to um, special interests, let's say. Our culture is desperately trying to cling on, to continue to propagate itself. But this post-enlightenment, post-modern, rationalist, scientist, materialist, um, Western culture that we have, um, has proved itself not to be fit for purpose, really. Um, yes, it produced astounding achievements, astounding results, but also astounding suffering, astounding inequality, astounding... astounding amounts of death and suffering, and much of that in the service of those things we have erected as our values. Um, fundamentally money, power, wealth, capital. And all of those things seem to be driving this dynamo of our society faster and faster and faster. And I get the impression that they feel embattled. The forces of imperialism, the forces of capitalism, the forces of patriarchy, the forces of um, skepticism about everything, um, realism about everything, which is no kind of realism at all, really, is it? Um, you know, I think that in the end, the... The old world, the ancien regime, the old order is crumbling at the edges. It is succumbing to chaos. The barbarians are at the gates. And the sentinels at the gates, the servants of the archons, the servants of the, the authorities, they are mowing down wave after wave of these barbaric invaders that are encircling them. But we just keep coming. And for a lot of us, we're already on the inside. We have been in there all our lives. Um, we have been trained. We have been 
um, indoctrinated um, to live by the laws of that city, uh, that fortified city, to be good citizens, not to step out of line, to bow to the hierarchs, to bow to the archons of money, power, influence, authority. But I feel like I and many of us have experienced over the last few years this kind of um, I hesitate to say awakening because it sounds a little bit cheesy, but like awakening in the sense that it's not, it's not just a spiritual awakening, it's we have been activated like sleeper cells, you know? Um, we have found within us all of this information and these tools we never realized that we had. Um, you know, something triggered our transformation and we suddenly realized that we were the resistance and that we were embedded already within the enemy camp deep in enemy territory and that it is our duty to perform insurgency now absolutely i think that we're at the point where campaigning political campaigning um where mass demonstrations where, um, you know, consciousness raising is, um, is not really working. Um, and I think there's absolutely a place for uh, civil disobedience and there's absolutely a place for, um, you know, making our voices heard with acts that are increasingly extreme. However, we cannot all be doing that. Um, we just can't. And also, it's not efficient. Because if you do something like that, if you put yourself in actual physical danger um, in order to uh, try and get across a political point, um, you may well be wounded, badly injured, die. Um, and people are willing to risk it. I know they are. But what's also important is the war of ideas is the battle on the level of um, of the imagination and I think that that's where I am I think that um, I've experienced an increasing sense of urgency um, of emergency and thinking oh it's nearly too late. It's already very late. And only now, only now when things are absolutely at a point of crisis and probably past a point of no return, only now do we say, oh, what are we going to do? Shouldn't we be doing something? And I think that, um, very many bodies have already been thrown as cannon fodder in the battle against this machine that is trying to devour us. And many more bodies will be. And often the bodies that get thrown in the path of the juggernaut um, are the
the bodies that we sacrifice, and they're the bodies of people who are um, who are poor, basically, who are poor in resources, who are poor in influence, who come from marginalized groups, who live in developing countries, um, who are marginalized or marginal, um, eccentric, literally, um, for reasons of their sex, gender, religion, ethnicity, um, disability, all of these reasons, their bodies are on the line already. Um, and they are being crushed under the wheels of the juggernaut. And uh, one of the ways that we can choose to help is to actually think the battle for bodies is of ultimate importance. But the battle for hearts and minds is also crucial and also it can have a massive multiplier effect. If you change the hearts and minds of a community, of a culture, you may save or help or ease the path thousands more bodies than you could ever have carried in your actual arms. And so therefore, we must spread our imaginal arms, spread our imaginal wings, spread them out to protect our own, all of us, you know, which is all of us, spread them out to cover and to hide in their blessed shade those who need that shelter. We must give shelter. Spread them out to embrace the beauty of the world, the frailty of the world, and each other our vulnerability, our, our wonder. We must protect and embrace our wonder, our joy, our passion, our will to live, because all of these are under threat. And so that's what we want to do. You see, talking about art and magic is not just a theoretical conversation. This is not literary criticism. This is seeking ways to find out how to live. It's seeking ways to battle against the disenchantment of the world that we have been living in for the last 100, 150 years. Um, and it is seeking a way to re-enchant this world, to re-enchant our experience, um, to break ourselves out of the prison of the culture in which we're living, um, to rewild the garden that has been laying waste to, to
to bring down the Death Star, you know? I mean, all of these, all of these things are metaphors that are very powerful because um, a metaphor isn't just a pretty way of saying something. It's a symbol also, which carries a huge weight of connotation. Um, and in fact, you know, people who say that, you know, they only believe in concrete evidence and so on, um, what you must say to them as well, you know, abstract things do exist. They have powerful existence. And I'm not talking about necessarily something supernatural, like ghosts or gods or spirits, but I'm talking about ideas. For example, justice or truth. love. We cannot hold them, we cannot touch them, we cannot see them, we cannot prove them. And yet we can prove them. You see? So, that's the program. Chat with interesting people about interesting things. Um, Share thoughts on art, literature, poetry, magic, and sort of by the way, save the world. Because, you know, despite our feelings of approaching apocalypse, despite our feelings of approaching disaster, I just always try to remember that Apocalypse is not the end of the world. Apocalypse is revelation. Apocalypse is when that which is hidden comes to light. And so therefore, Apocalypse is now. And it is when everything that was hidden comes to light. And it is the end of not the world, but of a world. It is the end of the world we have been living in for at least the last 150 years, possibly the last 500 years, um, that world is coming to an end. And it is not going to end without a fight because the people who have most benefited from that system of the world don't want to give that up. So they must be dragged kicking and screaming into the brave new world in which we hope to find ourselves. In the face of the end of the world, the only thing we can possibly do is try to decide what we want the new world to look like. And even if it's not for us, even if it's for our children or for someone's children, we must try to build time capsules, to bury treasures that they will find, to bury caches of tools, texts, songs, myths, blueprints for them to rebuild. And all of what I'm saying here is metaphorical, but we don't know how literal this is going to be. Sometimes it seems very The only choice 
is to go down fighting, because otherwise you just go down anyway. You know? We're all gonna die. Maybe not immediately. But pretty soon. And so the question is, do you want to lie down and die peacefully? Maybe. And that is your choice. But I would prefer to cause a bit of a fuss. I would prefer to die fighting. In the words of Macbeth, blow wind come back, at least we'll die with harness on our back. Sword in our hand, song in our heart, in one hand magic, in one hand 